Hello and welcome to this... This is actually an extraordinarily special edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. It is part one of the fifth annual Fixie Awards, live from Portland, Oregon and Salem, Massachusetts. It's not really live, but it's we're recording it live. It's, there's part of it that's live. It's live right now. Gentlemen, how are you feeling? We've been so excited for this. Um, we spent the last 20 or 30 minutes trying to work all our technical kinks out. You guys are in the same room together wearing suits. We're dressed Correct. to the nines. We've got champagne. Lee, tell us a little about this vintage. Uh, 2007 Charles de Casanova Stradivarius. It's a fantastic, good value, but fantastic champagne. It's very, it's very good. And I was thinking, why are we dressed up and drinking champagne? We're not winning anything tonight. We're only, we're giving out awards. You don't celebrate that. But it's been no, very exciting for us. That's how exciting this award show is. That's true. Um, and I really have to say, guys, like I feel so prepared for this show. You wouldn't even believe it. Um, and I know you guys do too. I think a special pat on the back it needs to be given out to Jeremy, who, despite. Having a new child and uh, working 12 hours a day back on movies has caught up with all of us. And yeah, I mean, I that's, that's ex- ex- all you need to do is just never sleep. Right. You just have, so, don't have to sleep. You just don't sleep. And there's an amazing amount of hours at night. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you can get all sorts of things it's done. It's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, so we, we, should all, we should all plan on. You know, plan our, our our babies around the award shows when we can. I know I know those things sometimes yeah. they just happen when they happen. But um, live, yeah, guys, live and learn, Jeremy. So guys, I know we're gonna try to get through these very very uh, at a steady pace. We don't want to rush them, of course. We all got really nice thoughts, and, and I'm gonna be responsible for that. Um, but I do want to start with a couple questions before we get started. I just want to ask you guys how this year was for you. Great. Um, I'm glad you asked that because I did I, I did have a sort of uh, little introduction to this year as far as my that pertains specifically to my fixie awards um and that is the word empathy so a lot of my nominees have empathetic qualities to them whether you feel empathetic as an audience member watching them or they're empathetic towards other characters uh in the movies it's a theme that I noticed over and over again in compiling this list. And I wonder if it also was a specific thing that filmmakers tried to get across in this very divisive time we live in, mm. um, some more empathy. So keep that in mind, and I'll bring that word up over and over again yeah, as we go through do. this. Please do. Um, and point out those particular movies, performances especially, that evoke this, but I thought it was very interesting that, especially with everything that's going on in the world, that there was just so many empathetic performances that I really latched onto that part of of those performances. So that was important to me this year. How about you, Lee? Well, I think it was an exceptional year in movies, and I'm excited to say that because I feel like I set the bar relatively high when it comes to the year as a whole. Uh, I'm always kind of the first to shout out when a movie is not living up to my uh, or a movie year is not living up to my expectations and just as we continued to go through movie after movie after movie and i was seeing movies that i had been looking forward to i was consistently pleased to say the very least and i think it was a great year and touching a little bit on what jeremy said what what i really liked about this year in movies is 
I guess for the lack of a better description, the subtleties that the filmmakers took in approaching the issues that they wanted to discuss. And a little bit of a criticism I had last year, and you guys heard me talk about it, is that everything was an issues movie and everything was overtly an issues movie. And that's not always a bad thing. But there were times where I found it draining and I was like, I just don't want to watch another movie about this. I deal with this in the world. Uh, movies, as much as I think they're important and can say a lot of things about the world, they are also escapism to a certain point. So there were times where I just didn't want to watch another Black Klansman or uh, Green Book, Green Book, or you know what, or Boy Erased, or something like that. Uh, and this year, I think the movies handled a lot of these issues, but they did it with a nice amount of subtlety. And I think it was a little bit less in your face, and it was refreshing to see. I think maybe a little bit more of a positive outlook on some of these things as opposed to a response uh, and a frustration to things that are going on in the world. So, again, not not my my uh, picks don't necessarily represent that 100%, like Jeremy said, but I appreciated that a lot about this year. Right. <clears throat> Those are both great answers. Um, yeah, I would agree. I think uh, I would agree with both you guys. I'm excited to see how those um, suss out in your picks. Um, I, I, I have a couple positive things to say. One, I think, you know, we, we're always championing kind of um, not so much independent filmmaking, but filmmaking that doesn't necessarily, that kind of um, sways away from the typical Hollywood style of, that we see. And we're very critical of the way films are going. But I think this year is a really good example of, you know, now that we've gotten into the depths of, of some of the films that maybe didn't get as much attention, I think this th- I think there are some really great movies being made, despite, you know, the sort of marvelification of everything. Um, and I also want to say, you know, I know um, the Oscars have gotten a lot of criticism for, you know, being very male and very white in terms of their n- nominations. But I, th- but I got to say that at least um, with my nominations, I think that um, there's 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 some good diversity here, and I think that that comes from exploring those maybe lesser seen films a little bit. Um, and in particular, uh, there's a category that I'll point out um, when we get to it that I think is really significant in terms of that. Um, I do want to ask you guys one more question, and it, it, you guys, we don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but is there a category that you guys think is most interesting for you for that when you reveal your nominations to? to us that you guys think will be most surprised by i can can tell you you a category that's most well well there's there's categories that were were sort of rich with the nominees and really tough Mm -hmm. um to pick winners uh and there was maybe one category i had that uh was partly my fault not having seen the movies that may or may not have led to more nominations but i also thought was uh, a little bit of a weak category, and that could be because, you know, uh, it, it was Best Actress, so I don't know if it's just, again, there's not as many roles for women um, as there are for men. Uh, and there are there are some categories, and I'll wait till we kind of get to them, that I had definitely uh, it, more interesting or out-of-the-box picks compared to the mainstream media, compared to the Oscars. But that's kind of the whole point of this award show is, I mean, we don't go out of our way. What's good about it is like, we don't go out of our way to try to nominate performances or movies just because of, of diversity or because they aren't getting enough acclaim everywhere else. I think we we genuinely just gravitate and and 
pick the the winners we think deserve to be there. And a lot of times those are the movies. And it's great to be able to have a platform to help other people discover these performances and these movies. That's a great answer. Um, Lee, do you have a thought? Um, I don't know that I have one category or another that's jumping out at me. Um, a lot of what Jeremy said, I, th- I think I have some that are um, fuller in terms of candidates than others. Um, I, I think maybe the, the category that has intrigued me most this year is the first one we're going to do in Best Cinematography, and we'll, of course, get to that very shortly. Great. Um, I do want to point out that one reason why the Fixies is the greatest award show is that we remove ourselves from the Oscar campaigns. I think what's important to point out, and a lot of people didn't know because I didn't know, I've been into movies and been watching the Oscars since before I can remember, is that the studios and the actors and all these people, they campaign for these awards. It's a big time in Hollywood when there's lots of parties and there's lots of, you know, pressing the flesh. It's almost like an election. Um, and I have a little fact for us that Netflix, which, you know, has been trying to, you know, establish itself amongst the Oscars um, for the last couple of years now, spent $70 million on their Oscar campaigns for their movies this year. Um so that's an entire movie in and of itself, a pretty big budget movie um, that they spent that's promoting crazy. it. But of course, none of that goes our way. We don't. We we abstain from the parties, you know. Yeah, um, we we specifically don't take their money. They offered, don't. yeah, we said no, and we're not. We don't. We're not. There's. I have one exception um, on this list, but for with the exception of with every other nominee on our list, we didn't. We don't know any of them. We don't. We haven't met them. We haven't been at parties with them. So this is a very pure thing. I also want to state that um, we left documentaries off this list and we're very strong fans of documentaries at Get Your Film Fix. Um, but we're gonna go, we're gonna talk about our documentaries um, on another podcast, which I'm grateful for because I you know, needed to see a lot of movies this year and I haven't had a chance to catch up with all the documentaries and I'm hoping to do that before we do that show. But uh, just wanna let everybody know that we missed that. We also missed um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I'm really excited to see. I think it comes out in um, the next couple of weeks. But there's been some movies that just we just couldn't get to. I think that's the biggest, most important example of a film that we were just unable to see. Um, are right. there any? Uh, I didn't get to Waves. Um, I also haven't seen Once Upon or um, uh, the the um, Tom Hanks Mr. Rogers Beautiful movie. Day in the Neighborhood. Yeah. Yep. Um, are there any ones you guys want to call out that you haven't seen? I mean, outside of the Judys and Rocketmans and Harriets, not really. Okay. Um, I'm quite proud of myself. I did as well as I think I possibly could, um, with the exception of like Lady of the Portrait on Fire, Les Miserables, a couple of the foreign films that just haven't been released in the United States. No way to see them. And we'll get to those, hopefully. How about you, Jeremy? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I wish I had seen Malik's newest movie. Um, me too. Oh, that's one, yeah. Me too. Hopefully and we'll get uh, to that. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, like you mentioned, those those are the two big ones. And I missed uh, missed out on Bombshell too. Um, it was another one I wish I'd seen. But other than that, again, I think this is the year that we've collectively seen the most movies of Great. all the fixies. We're super prepared. All right. Well, and get your film fix style. We're almost twelve minutes in and haven't said anything yet. So let's just do it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start best cinematography. Mine number five. Oh, wait, Lee, do you want to talk about the scoring system at all? People know uh, that, right? We probably should. I mean, we just did something a little bit differently this year. Normally, five through one, number five would receive one point, then two, three, four, five. We just upped the points a little bit. So it's three, four, five, six, seven points go to the number one pick. And we just did that to make the basically 
So number four wasn't twice as many points as number three. It kind of closes the gap in terms of the points. But other than that, everything's the same. Great. And thank you to Palmer and Associates for um, doing all the hard work and math for us. Um, okay. Yes. Well, best cinematography, our first category of the Fixies of 2000, the cinematic year of 2019. And my number five is 1917. Oh, wow. <clears throat> well, I'm glad you... Uh... You acknowledged its greatness somewhere here, Chapin, because <laughs> I feel like this is going to be the movie where you and I split on a lot Uh-oh. in this nomination All right, process. Well, wh- why don't you tell us your number five then, Jeremy? Uh, my number five is Lawrence Scher, uh, who did The Joker. Joker, yeah. And, of course, uh, Roger Deakins it, did 1917. And Roger Deakins did 1917. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know we have some disagreements over uh, Joker, I enjoyed it more than you guys did. If you want to go back and listen to that podcast, I'm I'm not like a huge fan. It wasn't like I was praising the movie, uh, but I also didn't despise it, and I really did enjoy Joaquin Phoenix's performance in it. I understand the flaws, and I get what um, what you guys were saying about the movie, but I do think they did a good job um, portraying that 1970s gritty era of filmmaking that they were trying to emulate in every aspect of this movie. But I think where it hit the most was with the cinematography. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's a beautifully shot movie. I also love the score by the, um, the woman who did the Chernobyl score, which was so moving this year for all of us. Um, It's not, it's not on my list, but I did, I did find it to be a beautiful movie. Well, you guys can we can get into this now if you'd like. Neither of your picks made my list for best cinematography oh this year. Oh my god. Well, oh what god. is your number 5, Lee? My number 5 is Rodrigo Prieto for The Irishman. Wow. Um this was a late addition to the list. I was my number 5 was sort of up in the air. 1917 was included and a couple things I liked about The Irishman the sort of obvious one is the use of slow motion, the use of ultra slow motion that he uses in a few scenes Mm. that I thought was really nice and really effective. But it's really the movie as a whole. He does something really nice with kind of the saturation levels and some sharp contrast, and it just makes the overall look of the movie very authentic, and it looks sharp. And I just think on the simplest level, you have a movie that looks really good start to finish, and then on top of that, Prieto does a lot of cool things with the camera, whether it's a steady cam shot, whether it's slow motion, um, whether it's a scene going through the car wash that just, you know, may seem out of place. It may just seem to be something to show off slow motion with water coming down on a car and the, the mops wiping the windshield. But it just is so effective for you to spend time getting inside of De Niro's head in that scene. And I think while not the showiest cinematography of the year i think it was great uh it, it, i can tell you right now it did not make my list it mine didn't either. even make mine not uh you know honorable mentions which we won't get into but um jeremy did you have me, a chance to rewatch the irishman uh i started to but i didn't rewatch the whole thing Good. um but why like, not because <laughs> i had 54 other movies to watch um <laughs> that I could fit into the same time frame. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like you said, it's not like it's not showy, which is fine, but there's also nothing special about it. I also think that, like the 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 aging aspect of it kind of in a weird way hurts the cinematography because it agree. distracts. I totally agree. Um, 
and be, yeah, because that just there to me there was a great list of uh, nominees for this, and uh, that one really didn't even cross my mind. See, I think the aging maybe the I think the cinematography helped certain scenes with the aging because it would use lighting to sort of hide their eyes or do something to just kind of aid that technology a little bit so that you weren't totally distracted by the aging. And you guys know that that was a big distraction for me in that movie. Um, but I think the cinematography actually may have helped it at times. Okay. Uh, my number four is uh, Adam Newport Barra for The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Now, this is the one exception I have to make. I do. Adam is a friend of a friend. He lives in Portland, and I've actually hung out with him at a party at one point, and I was a little starstruck, and you know, my mouth was agape, and <laughs> was this couldn't, before couldn't speak. you um, saw less? It was, yeah. it was actually. Um, but I honestly think, that, I mean, despite all that, I think he, I think he did an incredible job with this movie. Um, it, it, you won't, um, it, it's it's not going to be on my top ten list, uh, but I think it's a gorgeous film that just captures a sort of hyper realism, a sort of um, hypnotic quality, uh, and and I just think uh, I love what he does with zooms. You 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 don't see zooms a lot anymore. Um, I, I I work with a couple DPs, uh, you know, on commercials and stuff, and they for some reason there's a shying away from 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 zoom lenses and and i don't really know why that that is a lot people love primes and um he certainly uses them well in this film as well but there's these beautiful like in-camera zooms in this film that are so um effective i think at 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 making this film have a a a sort of a different look um and you know my one of my favorite filmmakers stanley kubrick used the zoom a lot and i think it's an underrated tool that i'd love to see filmmakers use more often He's definitely uh, somebody I considered for a nomination, uh, but just just didn't make the cut. It is a very sort of beautiful hypnotic uh, movie um, that not only uses zooms well, but it uses slow motion well too. Totally, as it sort of yeah. as it as it sort of glides through the streets of San Francisco. So uh, definitely a great pick. What's your number four, Jeremy? It, well, to, to piggyback on to yours a little bit, Chapin, it is another movie that um, was hypnotic, but not in the... It was a more frenetic, hypnotic sort of movie. Um, and it's Trey Edward Schultz. He did Waves. Mm. Um, this movie, especially right from the get-go, it's like it, it's always always moving. Um, the camera's always moving. And at first, it almost seems distracting. It seems too chaotic. But once they decide, I mean, it, it's beautiful, but it's a little bit like, whoa, okay, we get it. It's just like a, a, a kick to the gut. Um, but once he starts slowing it down and he uses different aspect ratios within the movie, I don't want to give too much away uh, about the movie, but there is a perspective switch in this film, oh, interesting. which is which also there's a perspective switch with the cinematography um and the colors are just so amazing and vibrant in this movie like i don't know how they were able to do this sort of lighting design i mean it helps that they shot this in florida in an area that it you know has a lot of bright you know colors pastels and stuff like that but it's really beautifully done. 
Um, and again, it's hypnotic, but not it, not in the way that Last Black Man is, where it sort of uh, puts you in a trance. This is like hypnotic and chaotic. Um, but uh, yeah, that's my number four. I considered this too. And uh, this was Drew Daniels was the director of photography for this. Uh, Trey Richelt is the director. Um, oh, sorry. And uh, but you're right. Like this has a intensity to the filmmaking too, until that perspective change where you need to you know change that intensity to something else and i think you know if you think about a nominee from last year um del Bonnell for the coen brothers movie where he had to do something different for each one of those stories and we gave him a lot of credit for that you have something a little bit similar here uh he didn't make my list but i definitely considered him um my number four is hung yam pyo for parasite second year in a row i've nominated him he shot burning last year and I think that this is another example of just an overall well-captured movie. Um, his filmmaking is metaphorical, just like much of the rest of the movie. The lighting in all of the houses, the Kim's house, the Park's house, the basement, are all lit differently and are all shot differently, and it represents something different. And then you have those shots running through the rain, which are gorgeous, and just the interiors of the park house is gorgeous. And I think this is, like Burning, a gorgeous movie. Uh, excellent filmmaker. Well, I'm so I'm so glad that you made that. I didn't realize that he had shot Burning as well. That's great to know. Two very different films, especially from a camera perspective. Definitely. Um, uh, was he, was that a... on your list or not, Chapin? Or maybe we, we'll see, I we'll, guess. We shall see. Um, well, I just want to say, like, he f- that's a great pick. And Is it I not almost, on yours? It's not on my list. I didn't, I, I didn't consider it as much because it was another one of those where it, it just so perfectly told the story without distracting from it. Yeah. Um, that it's not, it's not flashy or showy. Yeah. So, uh, but it, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely some great cinematography. So it's a good pick. Okay, well, that being said, um, my number three is, um, oh, God, Pavel Pogorzelski. Pogorzelski. Pogorzelski for Midsommar. Um, I I saw this movie again after we reviewed it on the podcast, um, and we'll talk about it more, I hope, you know, hopefully um, throughout the, the podcast. But uh, I, I was really struck by the cinematography. Um, I mean, my... my 1917 we we talked about it's got all these long shots but you there's a lot of those in Midsommar but they're not obvious as we've discussed before um he does a lot of long takes that are really intricate and the way he moves the camera is really incredible but the, you don't notice it it's so um sort of uh fluid and uh I don't know like it, um, but the, the the point about this is is that it tells the story. The, the, the mm-hmm. what I really focused on with this category this year was how does the cinematography tell the story? There's some beautiful stuff. I'm sure if we saw the Malik movie, it would have made our list. Um, there's a lot of beautiful photography. Joker, for example, Jeremy, you pointed out. But what I was really interested in this year is seeing how how do you use cinematography to tell the story? And they just do a brilliant job with in Midsommar. It just it does. Um, it, I, I, the camera work is incredible, um, but it's not it's not noticeable. You 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 sort of glide with it and, and go with it, and I think it's incredible. And I um it's a and it's also a it's also a beautiful movie. Um you know which 
uh, is there's a sort of certain sense of irony there with the subject matter. Um, and so that's my number three. I'm going to just jump ahead real quick because that's my number three as well. Beautiful. I did not make my list, so why don't you guys discuss? Well, I agree with a lot of what Chapin said. It's The movie is not really that scary. It's certainly disturbing, but the filmmaking is creepy. Like, the way it just paces itself around this commune and it holds on certain things that you're only given a second to sort of evaluate before it moves past it. Uh, And then on top of that, he does this drug trip aspect of the filmmaking too, which is very effective. And it kind of makes you trip along with these actors and these characters. And I hate that in movies because it makes me feel sick, but God, was it effective? Okay. What's your number three, Jeremy? Uh, So my number three is Jaron Blaske who was cinematographer for The Lighthouse. Jaron Blaschke. <laughs> That's my number two. So That's awesome. your number two. Great. So this is uh, going to be one of the few Lighthouse nominees for me. Um, but if you had to point out one aspect of this movie that sort of takes over and you just can't look like if you watch if this movie didn't have this cinematography and wasn't so engrossing in that way it would be it would be some people call it a hard watch as it is but it would be even a harder watch Mm. for a lot of people but the way that this movie looks and the way they shot it in the black and white and um it really helps engage you with the mysteries of this story um because it's definitely not a totally normal linear uh, it's a bizarre movie that takes very bizarre turns but the one consistency you have here is this stunning uh black and white cinematography yep. yeah it didn't make my list and just hearing you talk about it i'm kind of wondering why it didn't because it it is gorgeous i actually to be honest with you i think maybe the reason it didn't make it and this isn't fair is that i ended up being a little bit oddly disappointed in the cinematography, which is not at all to say that it was bad. But what but, was disappointing? What could No, I honestly just you? had such high expectations for it. I mean, you watch the trailer and it's just this gorgeous looking black and white. And I don't know, maybe the movie as a whole took some points away from it for me. I can't totally be sure. It's, it's certainly one I considered. It was a, you know, a close honorable mention, but it just didn't end up making the cut. Uh, yeah, well, I totally disagree with you. I think it's it's both gorgeous, atmospheric. It's doing something that um, no other movie this year did. Um, I think it's it's sometimes a cheat to do black and white. Like when, when like when photographers, still photographers, use black and white. Like on Instagram, you're like, yeah, that looks cool because you're not using color. Um, <laughs> and but I I think that's it was such a smart choice for this. And the lighting is still very precise and very. Um, you know, you've intense. got intense. Yeah, you've got the hard, harsh lighting of um, inside the cabin where they live and, and the lighthouse, obviously. But also, yeah, apparently, in, it was like blinding the lighting. Yeah, just to because, get the because they shot they on really, uh, uh, really low uh, ASA film stock. Um, and so they had to use a lot of light and it's shot on film and it's just got this gorgeous look that you just. Um, you don't really see very often. No. So, um, yeah, I love that. You definitely okay, don't. so now that we've done this, whose who's turn is it now? Is it mine? Uh, so that was your number two, correct? Yes, yes. So it will be Jeremy's number two? Yeah. Yes. 
Uh, so my number two is Caesar Charlone, who did The Two Popes. Oh, interesting. Uh, wow. Everything about this movie that works is because it takes the unexpected and well, so, uh, takes a subject matter that's sort of unexpectedly or that's not interesting and makes it interesting. And the cinematography is no different. And I really love the way that they use flashbacks in this movie uh, and the way that they shot the flashbacks in this movie. It was a lot of those flashbacks like reminded me a lot of like French new wave movies. Um, Mm. They had a a sort of bouncy look almost to them. Like the camera, like it's, it's both beautiful and almost documentary style. Um, And also just to have this movie about two guys having a conversation and keeping that interesting. Um, Yeah. I I was, I was impressed with uh, the way they were able to make this movie just feel the way it felt. Yeah. I, I really, I mean, I of course admire his work on city of God and constant gardener, just beautiful stuff on film and, Seems like in the digital age, he's done the same thing. Lee, what's your number three? My number two, two, two is two. Darius Kanji for Uncut Gems. Oh wow, um, man! I this movie is intense. Of course, the filmmaking is gritty and visceral and fast, and the color design, the lighting, is so good. Um, of course, there's, there's been plenty written about um, his his use of the the White Ranger two, which is basically a device that allows you to keep focus when things are moving very fast and you're using close-ups, which a lot of this movie is. I mean, Adam Sandler is constantly moving and walking around the city in this in this movie, and he's always got close-ups, and it's very close on his face, and I just think this is great work, and mm-hmm. Darius Conti's obviously done a lot of great work over the years, and this was a big, big highlight of this movie for me. Yeah. I'm really glad you put it. It's not on my list, but God, yeah. And he's done, he's worked with Bong Joon-ho before and mm-hmm. I think a couple other directors on our on our list here. That's great. I'm really glad you put that on there. It's not on mine, but. Um, What's interesting about this category is, I mean, we've had so like, I think this is going to be our most diverse category as far as the amount of people we mention. Um, and a lot of it has to do with just what caught your eye for that movie and how you articulated the camera made you feel. Because like, what Lee is saying about Uncut Gems is definitely, it's true, and that sort of hit him in a, a certain way where, as I didn't even consider Uncut Gems right. for this list. Yeah, that's so, crazy. Even though Darius um, Kanji is like one of our greatest living cinematographers. I mean, I mean, he shot seven. Just gorgeous Midnight work. in Paris we talked about. Um, yeah. But I that's surprised. what I mean. It's like what catches you and makes you decide like uh, – because there's just so many good cinematographers that especially uh, were out this year. So I don't mm-hmm. know. It's just, it's an interesting category for yeah. that. You, this is crazy though. Like I thought, you know, that being my number two I, and not hearing it from you guys yet, I, I was thinking this was going to be a, a contender to win this award. And now mm-hmm. I'm, I have no idea. Okay. So we're under our number ones, my right? Number one. Is it my turn? Yes. Yes, I'm sir. The host. I should know that. Mine is Parasite. Um, Hong Kyung Pyo. <laughs> yeah, just say it real fast. That's the key. Yeah, Hong uh, for Parasite. <laughs> uh, Great. This was far. This was far and away um, the most 
the the I mean I you know I started with this one um, being number one. It's a beautiful film, but I think mo- more importantly, um, this film is told in shots, and uh, I think it's the 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 camera work just. It just tells a story. Just everything about it, like, makes you like. I remember specifically the scene when um, the family is hiding under the table um, from the other family, from the rich family, and just just the way the camera moves and everything. It just it just tells you everything. It's like another voice in the film, which is what you want. Um, mm-hmm. I was listening to this. Uh, you guys are going to probably hate this anecdote, but I, um, Quentin Tarantino was on the Ringers podcast, The Rewatchables, a couple times, and he was talking about the distinction between sort of how um, they were doing um, uh, Unstoppable, directed by uh, Tony Scott, and he, was, of course, has a, a close had a close relationship with Tony Scott and was talking about the difference in directing styles between Tony Scott and himself, and you know, he was saying in a very nice way, although it sounded boastful out of context, that you know, every shot that Tarantino does, every shot in his films are, um, you know, he's looking through the um, through the viewfinder. He he's lining up. He's every shot in his films are his own. You know, I mean, despite the fact that he's working with these great cinematographers, that he's framing them and and he signs off on them. And you know, in retro, in, in comparing to Tony Scott, who shoots everything with like ten cameras, there's this great photo on the internet of Tony Scott like directing, and he's standing next to like four cameras, all <laughs> giant Panavision cameras pointing in the one way. Um, and when I think about Parasite, I think about that anecdote of of. Tarantino's. I mean, everything feels so precise. Every camera movement feels exactly as Bong Joon-ho wanted it, and it tells the story because of its precision. And that's not usually how I think or like movies. I, I think of it as you know capturing um, something beautiful on set or you know kind of a passive quality. But I really Parasite has made me rethink how I think about cinematography, and so it's got to be my number one. Great. Yeah, that's. Um that's a great pick uh, and a great reason for it, too. Uh, I'm up, right? Yep. Yep. So when I walked out of the theater of this, I the first thing I thought was, well, obviously, this is going to win the Fixie for Best Cinematography. And uh, now I don't think it will. Uh, it is Roger Deakins in 1917. I don't know. It um, I was, I mean... I know we'll, we can get into the one-shot thing again if you want. I mean, if we've already talked about it now on, I think, three podcasts. But, <laughs> but this, you can't take anything away from how impressive the cinematography was in this movie and the achievement it was and how beautiful it was. I mean, I walked out thinking, well, this might have been the best cinematography I've seen since The Revenant. Like, I was just that impressed with this movie. Um, And I think a lot of it also has to do with his ability to light space and light large spaces. Like, you think about the the scene where he's running through the blown-up village, uh, you know with bombs going off in the background and it burning around him and just how he would go in and out of the shadows and in and out of the light and just how beautiful that is and how impressive that is and how hard it is to pull off. Um, I don't think there's anybody better at using light than, than Roger Deakins. And the fact that it all is one shot should 
in my opinion, give it that one that credit. Obviously, it's not really, but to look that way, credit should be given to him for that. And uh, yeah, I was just like I was blown away by it when I walked out, and I still am. And I, I there was no doubt to me what was going to be my number one. So there it is. Good. Well, just a couple notes on why this didn't make my list. And I'm not going to deny the achievement or the accomplishment or the technical prowess, but I do think that the bar is set a little higher than the oneer now. I think there needs to be more, and I found this filmmaking to be mechanical. And it's a technical category, but there needs to be some emotion in the filmmaking, and I felt I like this didn't is. have it. I just didn't feel it. I have to be honest. That was my problem with the whole movie. Like everything I just said about the lighting and the feeling and the mood and yeah. all that that rolled into the emotion of that character and emotion of that movie, uh, at least for me, that was all there. It wasn't just that. I don't we know. They, a, it, a, a little bit of it felt like spectacle to me. And look, I, it's it didn't make my list. This is a exceptional year for cinematographers. So I'm not discrediting the work done. I just think that I was looking for, you know, emotional filmmaking on, uh, as well as technically sound filmmaking. And then the point that Chapin brought up as well, I want the filmmaking to tell a story. And I don't know that Deacon's filmmaking really aided the story in 1917 that well, if there was a story to be aided. Um but that moves me right into my number one, Chabe, unless you have something else to say about no, 1917. No, go ahead, please. Uh, my number one has been mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned it, Chabe, Adam Newport Barra for Last Black Man in San Francisco. Wow. Um, you guys mentioned the slow motion, which I love, the zooms, which I love. Second year in a row, I've had a, a movie make best cinematography with just gorgeous skateboarding scenes. Yeah, totally. Um, but I am not sure that, or I can't remember a movie that quality was so credited to the photography as this one. I just think it, it, it tells the story so beautifully. And it captures emotions. It captures the city. It tells the story. And it's just what I loved most about this movie. It's gorgeous, too. I mean, the end shot alone when he's in the rowboat with the Golden Gate Bridge behind him and it's foggy. I mean, that's hard not to make look good but he also lights that beautifully it's i might be done at magic hour or something like that again something that's really easy to make look good but i just thought it was absolutely gorgeous and then on top of that it was telling a story it was emotional it aided the character's struggles the character's uh, plights i just think it was great so this is interesting because i think we may have a tie here. yeah what's the winner I, I have no idea what's going to win so i'm going to grab the envelope here for best cinematography and the winner is uh so tie parasite and last black man in san francisco 11 oh my god each what? lighthouse also had 11 points but didn't appear as a number one pick on anyone's list all three 11-point earners appeared on two nomination lists, each and both Parasite and Last Blend. So this tied every tiebreaker. Wow. Well, this is a first. <laughs> this is literally a first, a tie. This is amazing because none of us had one on all three of our lists. No. Nope. That's crazy. Uh, wow. Look at that. So this is, yeah, first time in history of the Fixies. This is amazing. So Parasite, um, Hong Gyeong-pyo, and Adam Newport-Bera, both Fixie winners for Best Cinematography. 
Neither on my list. <laughs> but the lighthouse had the same amount of points. Right. It just didn't. Uh, it just didn't make the tiebreakers. Wow. Amazing way to start, guys. That's amazing. So, okay, well, maybe we can get Adam to come in here and accept his fixie. We'll have to figure out what a fixie looks that would like. Be, that yeah. would be great. Hello, this is Andrew Gibson, the director of Gutterbug. Um, my favorite film of 2019 would have to be The Lighthouse. Um, I thought the whole movie was really well done, um, and the whole experience seeing it in the theater was really immersive and really trippy and really psychedelic and uh, really exciting. Um, and I just remember kind of getting lost in it and not really being sure the kind of like time and space were kind of like out the window at one point when you weren't really sure what was happening, what was real, what happened two weeks ago or what was happening now. Um, so I thought that movie was, was pretty incredible. Um, I also really enjoyed, um, the beach bomb, um, Harmony Crean's film with Matthew McConaughey. Um, I thought that was a fucking hysterical movie. I saw it twice in theaters and laughed my ass off. Um, so I really liked that. And then I really liked um, Monos was a, a wacky Colombian movie that, that came out this year that I thought was really cool. Um, Uncut Gems, I really liked that one as well. That was a pretty intense, crazy crime drama from the Safdie brothers. Um, and then Greener Grass was a, a wacky comedy that I also saw this year um, that was really cool. And um, Honey Boy, I also liked that one too. So those were uh, a few films that I liked this year, and um, look forward to hearing more on the podcast in 2020. Take care. Okay, so uh, we're moving on to Best Supporting Actor, and you know what? I would love Lee to start. I Lee, what's your to. number five? My number five is Joe Pesci and The Irishman. Nice. Man, like, I forgot how good of an actor he is. <laughs> he's and he's been, playing so against type in this. He, totally. he is. But there's something that, that uh, on my rewatch, I noticed a line that he gives that is so good and so important. For this whole movie, he's kind of quiet. You know, he's respected and he's in control. But I don't know that you fear him 100%. You see that people do as he asks. So there's obviously been a history that cr has characters fear him. But then later in the movie, when Pesci as Russell Buffalino basically tells De Niro's character, Frank Sheeran, what's going to happen. He just says to him, he just looks up at him and he says, don't call him. And it's so threatening and so scary because you know that's what Sheeran was thinking. He's going through his head trying to figure out how he can prevent this from happening. And he says, don't call him. And that's when you see the duality in this performance that is so good. Yeah. Um well, I'm sure we'll get to more uh, of that performance later. Uh, do you want me to go next, Chapin? Please. All right, my number five. Well, first of all, this was definitely the category I had the most considerations. I have oh, like yeah. a half page of considerations <laughs> for this, so it was tough to narrow this down. Um, but my number five is a former Fixie winner. It is Timothy Chalamet in Little Women. Very nice. Um, he just he just works for this character so well. You get what his appeal is for these women, and you get why there is this sort of lifelong bond between that one family and him. He's he's just got this cat, cat, like you 
te- can tell he comes from money and he's got this sort of casual coolness about him but he also is a very he also portrays it as very genuine and heartfelt um he is one of the you know great up-and-coming actors um you know we obviously praised him yeah tremendously in the past he's one and one a fixie i mean what else can you say um so there you go my number five okay uh my turn my number five is <laughs> Alan Alda in Marriage Story. Ah, uh, great pick. I, I I really liked. He's so good. I really liked him. Like he's I thought fine. he was. I thought he had this this nice, genuine quality. I I think again, like trying to distinguish these categories from each other. I think with supporting performances, um, it's a different animal than a, a, a Lee performance. And he really just um, brought like a tenderness and a warmth to. Um, contrasting with uh, uh, Ray Liotta and um, oh God, Laura Dern's character, and I just I liked him. Like I, I he stood out for me, and um, I, I I normally find him very a little bit annoying. You know, like I think of um, <laughs> Bill Hader's impression of him <laughs> often when I'm thinking about about his performances. But uh, boy, I I sure liked him a lot in this. And I thought he was sort of funny and genuine when, you know, the other lawyers weren't that way. Um, And and so he's my number five. A a little more of this will get revealed throughout the show. And I think it it speaks a lot to the categories more than anything else. He didn't make my list, but it was an honorable mention for me. I actually think he's the second best performance in that movie. Really? Yeah. We'll get more into that as we move through the show. Cool. Okay. So, Jeremy, you're number four. My number four, right? Oh, sorry. Yeah, Lee. We God, switched you're it up. a terrible host. I'm sorry. Well, I've had so much of this Fired. lovely champagne, which... <laughs> we just stopped hearing from Chapin. Um, my number four, Al Pacino from The Irishman. This is this is a, a performance I loved and I want, wanted to get on I agree. I agree. my list, but I just couldn't find a way. I just couldn't get these other people off of the list, and... I know people complain about this performance and I guess in general Al Pacino and being too showy and just being too big for the movie but I think it fucking works in this. It totally, it totally is this character works. and you fe- you you have you feel for this guy who well, in a just, weird he, way is caught like, in this exactly. world. He's, he's like just his own worst enemy. He doesn't know yeah. wh- what he's doing there. He doesn't realize yeah. how perilous his situation is. And you're like, God. And But you also see like the mafia's point of view, which is like, this guy is a fucking loud mouth. And we cannot have him going around talking the way he's talking. So is, you guys bring up such a great point. And what surprised me most is that he landed ahead of Pesci for me because first time seeing this, Pesci was the standout. But on rewatch, I just loved him so much in this movie. And when he's in full Pacino mode, I don't quite love it as much. No. And there's the scene when he's screaming to all his people about the Kennedys and he's just losing his mind. And I just, you know, that scene in particular, I didn't like as much. But then right after that scene, De Niro leaves because he doesn't want to be yelled at. And. Pacino follows him out. He's just like, he's like, I didn't know you were there. It didn't apply to you. How could I? I he just sounds like a kid trying to get out of trouble. And it speaks so much to his character. He's just like a little kid. He's petulant. He's stubborn. And he's just, it gets, keeps getting him into trouble. 
And I think those scenes are so funny. His arguments with Pro are so, so good. funny. I, I love the line. The line delivering, you're late. Yeah. You're late. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. that. And then the line that makes no sense but is so funny is when he tells Jesse Plemons not to put fish in his car, and that'll help him in life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? And it's so good. Okay. And I just, I loved him. All right, well, I'll just uh, continue the conversation because my number four is actually Joe Pesci in The Irishman. Nice. Um, It did go ahead of Al Pacino um, because of everything we just talked about. And also because of, you know, when you... It's been so long since Joe Pesci's been in a movie, and when you think of Joe Pesci in movies, especially Scorsese movies, you think of this amazingly violent, angry small man that needs to compensate for his size whereas this one he is so quiet so reserved so Mm -hmm. respected um and it all just comes across and you believe it and you just go yes okay i get and like you the, the movie never totally explains like why he is so revered you just kind of have to take that and and he's never He's never mean about it. He's, 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 he's you know, as point. violent as the actions are that uh, that are, you know, that come from the stuff that he, you know, demands of other people. He himself doesn't come across as particularly violent. I mean, there are scenes where you show, like, there's a, you know, one of the flashback scenes where he comes in from oh, covered in blood, and his wife sees him. And she kind of just goes, all right, I'll help you get cleaned up. Like, you know that he's done it in the past and you know he's been there. But um, it's great to see Joe Pesci again. And it's great to see him play against type in this role. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of the perfect culmination role for an actor like Joe Pesci. Yeah, he didn't make my list. He was the sort of the scion. Like, I put him on my list and had to rank everybody above him. And, you know, thank God for this year. There were a lot of great performances. Uh, I, I, what you just said, Jeremy, reminds me, and, and you too as well, Lee, reminds me of when we were editing our movie, The Gray Area, we had, you know, we had three these three guys performing. And um, one of them, this guy Morgan, who was the who played the character Jonah, he was, he, you could always cut to him. If you needed, if you needed a moment to land, you could always cut to him when he wasn't speaking. Like he was always listening, and he would, you would see the emotion of the scene on the film, uh, on his face. Um, and I felt that with Pesci, like he, you could, he does a lot without talking, which you don't think of for Pesci. Right. Like you think of him like going, "You Jew motherfucker," da, 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 yeah. you know. And and but it, there's a lot of times when like you know Harvey Keitel is yelling at De Niro, and you cut to Pesci, and he's just like looking at. De Niro and you you can see on his face um, what you're supposed to get from the scene and that's such a powerful thing like I just when we were editing that film we would cut back to him when we would lose the moment of the scene when we would lose the scene we'd be like oh well I guess we'll just cut back to Morgan and you could do the same thing with with Pesci it's like you know he he's incredible unfortunately he didn't make my list but um, it's so obviously like uh, a, a, an incredible performance um, he you know he was my sort of uh, I don't know what you call it, like positioning. Barometer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Barometer. Thank you. Um, okay. Lee. I'm up. Number four. What was your number four, Chapin? I didn't do mine yet. Okay, oh. so you're four. Sorry. So my number four is uh, Shia LaBeouf in Honey Boy. 
Okay. Um, this will be my only Honey Boy nomina- uh, nomination on the list. I really enjoyed this movie. I think he deserves a lot of credit. He wrote the film. You know, you see him. Uh, you know, obviously he plays his father in this movie, but you know he's uh, depicted by Noah Jupe as a young kid and as what's that uh, actor's name who you really Lucas don't Hedges. Know? Luke, uh, Hedges as a as an adult and. Um, I, I really enjoyed this movie, and I think he deserve, deserves a lot of credit for writing it. He he didn't make my best screenplay list because there's such great writing this year, but um, boy, I I just thought what in a what in a sort of emotional role to play, playing your father who so impacted the trauma of your life, and finding um finding like layers in 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 that performance. Yeah. You know, there's. There's times when he's abusive to his son, but you you also see the sort of the goodness in him. Um, it's you see such, where it, where it pains him. Exactly. You see, just there's such complexity, and um, I, I I just I imagine that must have been very difficult for him to do. And um, I'm really glad I'm really glad he made that film. And I it's free to everybody who has Amazon Prime, and people should check it out. It's it's a good movie, and um, he's a standout yeah. to me. I'm really glad he made your list because. I really like Shia LaBeouf. I think he's a good actor. I, I think he's it. really good in this. But I was watching Honey Boy, and I was really impressed with the performance, but I was realizing as I was watching it that he wasn't going to make my list. And I was thinking, this is an actor that's really good that I really like that might not ever get a Fixie nomination. Like, I just feel like he's... Uh, really- okay, hey, I have to ask you something. Like, because I felt this, especially, like, later in, like, the last couple weeks. Like... <sighs> How how much like knowing the fixies are coming up has colored the movie viewing experience? It's so stressful. Because you're thinking about it while you're going through it and you're like you're like, is this gonna where is this? Is this instead it's, of just letting it wash over you? Yeah. Especially this week when we like my list was like all but compiled. And so I'm basically watching movies with the potential of like inserting them somewhere and bumping yeah. somebody off a Which list. Which is annoying. Like, yeah. I know. We I should, know. We it's should a... never do it. Let's just stop right now. Yeah, that's it. All right. Um, do you want to keep three. moving on? My number three is Anthony Hopkins and the Two Popes. Mm. So, I mean, this is just an example of a seasoned actor playing a role so convincingly. Uh, you know, he's the antagonist, I guess, a little bit in this movie, <laughs> but he doesn't play himself that way. You believe in him in terms of his convictions. You understand where he's coming from. And he just does everything so well and so convincingly. Like, he moves like an old man. He kind of stumbles over his thoughts and his words. Well, he is but, an old man, to be fair. I know. I, but come on, give him <laughs> credit for that. I mean, he... Give him credit for aging? No, you watch this movie and you can see that that he has inhabited this role. This is yeah, Anthony, so good. Anthony Hopkins is one of my favorite actors. Um I think he's an incredible performer, and um, he did not make my list this year. But but, you're, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. This is this is one of those that was on my list for a while, but eventually just annoyingly got bumped off. Um, so I'm glad he got at least one fixie nomination because it really it was a, it, a great performance in a movie that uh, again needed two at least two great performances to make that work. What's your number three? My number three is one that was uh, high up there for a while. Um, 
and landed at number three upon my second viewing, and it's Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Nice. Uh, More more than likely, he's going to end up with the Oscar this year, and he's had a great year uh, acting-wise. I mean, obviously, I wasn't, or we weren't big fans of Ad Astra, but there's something about older Brad Pitt that brings some heft to his roles now, Mm -hmm. some weight on his face that really adds another dimension to his performances. And I think both of those performances this year, you can see that. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was just sort of made for him as being sort of the cool stoner, you know, Hollywood guy that the only unrealistic part about it is that he's not the the movie star and, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is. Um, but he he's just, uh, there's just something about that he can portray nowadays about an, another level behind his eyes that he never used to have. Mm. Like the good Brad Pitt performances before had to sort of... Um, you know, be woven into the tapestry of the film. Like you think about him in Fight Club, it had to have been a guy who looks like him, who has a casualness about him. Like that's what makes his performance so great in Fight Club because he is Tyler Durden. He's like the epitome of the ideal of a man. Whereas now, of course, he still sort of has that uh, aspect to him, but he also has uh age you know age with him as well and it does bring another level to to the depth of his performances and i i think we're gonna get into prime brad pitt from here on out yeah he um he didn't make my list i he i I wanted he was uh had the number five best actor position for a while on on my list um, for Ad Astra, which I, I honestly thought was a, a better performance than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Jeremy, I know you. I, I mean, he actually, I had to take him off my number five because I was worried you were going to yell it and scream at me. And so um, <laughs> someone else has replaced him. But uh, no, it was a good performance. I thought he I was incredible. I think he is doing his best work now. He's so been so funny um, on the award circuit, um, which, you know, doesn't really have any bearing on his performances. But like, I, I like to I see. I wonder what he'll say about his nomination. I, sure. I, I know. I like to see what he's doing. So yeah, I. I mean, I'm. I, I okay. So Lee, what's yours? That was my number. Th- I already did my number three. It's your oh. turn. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, my number three is Jonathan Majors from The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Nice. That's a that's a great pick. He was. Uh, he stood out to me too. Yeah, you know, he plays this kind of this role that we've seen before um, throughout most of the movie, where he's this you know kind of aloof character who people react to and are, are a little uncomfortable by because he's got, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he's like Asperger's or something, but he, yeah, a he, little bit. he yeah. feels a little bit like, on, like he may be on the spectrum. He's not quite in tune with everybody's um, uh, emotions at all. At the same time, he's, there's something a little bit off about him, but um, boy, he gives like such a great performance. And then his, his performing as the character um, in the play that he writes at the end of the film is so moving and just shows such range compared to his kind of um, distance, for lack of a better term, um, leading up to that point in the film that, God, I just, I just had to recognize him. He was such a standout to me and you see such pain in him and you, you see that, you know, he's not in tune so much 
always with um, the lead character's emotions, but then you you see from that performance within the performance in the play that he really does understand him and that he really does understand his friend. And that's so moving and makes for what I think was a, a really great scene um, when he does his little play there. Yeah, I mean, I think you, the thing about his performance is you always know, and, and I mean this in the mo- the best way, like you always know he's acting in it. And what I mean by that is like you don't think they, like you never think they cast some guy with a slight Asperger's. You know that there is an actor behind there portraying this character and portraying him impressively. Mm-hmm. There's just so much in his eyes too, so much empathy for for Jimmy in that movie that you really connect to. Yep. Okay. All right. Number two. My number two. Son Can Ho from Parasite. He plays the father of the Kim family, Kai Tech. Uh, this is one you could probably classify as a lead performance, but we made the decision to put all of the Parasite so. actors so. into into supporting roles. He definitely shows the biggest range of emotions, I think, among most of the actors in this movie. And you have to give him a lot of credit for that because for the first couple acts of this movie, you know, he's kind of funny and like he's participating in this con and you're really enjoying him and his part in that. But then as we start to see the other shoe, to, shoe fall, you start to see this embarrassment and this level of defeat. Yeah. And you just kind of, you see that all in his face. Like part of his job, you know, driving this rich family around is to not say too much, not react. So he can't do that. So just he faces forward, looks out the windshield, drives the car with this look in his eyes, thinking how these people are talking to me like, this i can't believe it and you really feel for him and i think it's a a great performance he's also my number two Uh, i totally agree with that i think he's the emotional core of that film Mm -hmm. of that family um and you do i feel like it's the most i think it's the best performance in the film i also think you get the most emotion from him like you said lee in those driving scenes when he needs to hold back and you know in retrospect when you see what happens to him what he does as a character um, in that, in the final, in the third act, you can see that bubbling up inside of him. Mm-hmm. It's clearly the uh, such a great performance, and um, so yeah, that's also my number two. Well, my number two kicked uh, Song Se Ho off my list because uh, he was my number five up until this morning, and uh, my number two is Shia LaBeouf in Honey Boy. Ooh, oh wow! Oh my God! God was he. Was he exercising some demons in this movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like this this performance was not only like it, it was it was quick, like it was quick witted. It was um, uh, he just uh, it's hard to describe. Like like to to take on playing your father in such a negative light because he was if it was just like playing your dad when like uh if you looked up to him and you wanted to sort of show the world what a great guy he was that'd be one thing but (laughs) he was really he was really going for it in this movie and uh, like the dialogue that he was able to sort of uh deliver uh like you, you knew that came from a place of truth. Um, mm. I don't know. Yeah, I was no, just so, so shocked really by this. Point. 
and yeah, and the the I think the I I feel I mean I could be totally wrong, but I feel like the finding the night you know the the moments of like you were saying, Jeremy, empathy for him for Shia yeah. were the hardest for him, and you can see that in his performance. Like it's hard for that character to be empathetic, but he is, you know. Yeah, and I I can't remember another actor going through as much or watching an actor go through as much this year as he did in that performance and i like this was another one where i didn't want honey boy to touch my list because my lists were set <laughs> and song say ho had number five and may have just uh, lost a fixie because of it um because I, I it's a good was point. Just, it's a good point. I, I was just so impressed with Shia LaBeouf, and I was like, I can't, I can't ignore this, and I, I like what he's doing here, and if, and what's really impressive about it is, even if I didn't know he was portraying his dad, just if I saw him give that performance, like coming in blind, I, I still think it would have been on my list and in pretty high. So. Uh, I'm glad, you know, he's getting the credit he deserves here. Okay. Am I on to number one now? Yeah. Man, I was, this made my number one and I was like, can I do this again? Timothy Chalamet for Little Women. Oh my God. Okay, so how does He's also my number one. Oh my God, he's gonna win it. So, I mean, this kid, I mean, what can I say? Like, he's so good. He's so convincing. And, I mean, he's great throughout the whole movie. But that scene with Joe, when he confesses his love to her, won me over. I mean, and apparently he improvised most of that scene, which is just proof of how into his character he becomes. But the one point I really wanted to bring up is what Chapin mentioned on the Little Women podcast about the modernism that he brings to this role which I think is so essential both to his character but also to this movie. And to compare it to something, he plays King Henry in The King this year that lacks any type of modernism. It's 100% period Oh, piece. I disagree, Lee. I think that's what hurts that. I think th- there is a weird modernism to him in that that just doesn't Oh, you think fit. so? No, I think he's too... I think he's playing a Shakespeare character too much and you lose any type of semblance of a, of a performance. He's just reading the lines. And and here he brings himself into the role of Laurie, and and I think it's just it's just spot on. Oh wow! Fucking Timothy Chalamet, give, yeah. like give an award to someone else. Let somebody else win. Let this. someone else win. I but okay, yeah, Lee, I totally agree with you. Obviously, because you're restating what I said brilliantly on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but the one thing I'll say also about him is that I I I. I, I I do think that that is a real struggle for these period films is finding a way to take, you know, dialogue from that period, costumes from that period, the look of that period, the way people act and connect with each other from that period and make it connect with people. As you said, Jeremy, empathy this, in, in, in modern times and especially as like, you know, a rich kid compared to these um, compared to the little women. And you really feel that. And, and you also feel, you know, from a heterosexual point of view, why he's such an appealing, um, you know, yeah, you get it. You get it. You get it. So Jeremy, I want, we got to know your number one best supporting actor. All right. Well, this is where we come back to empathy. And, um, when I first saw this 
performance. I was like, I was really moved by it. And I was moved by how much this character cared about the other people and how much he cared about his friend. Um, and it's Jonathan Myers in The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Ooh, oh my God. And, Man. And when I saw it, I, uh, it's, it's been my number one since then. And I just, there's just something about, I've never seen a character like this, first of all, portrayed. Because like we've talked about, like they never really acknowledge anything about him being on the spectrum or what it is um, that makes him a little bit socially awkward. But uh, it's, it's clearly there. But this is a guy that cares. And this is a guy that takes in his environment and doesn't, he doesn't uh, project it out negatively. Even if it comes at him negatively, he doesn't project it out negatively. He either puts it into his art, which is his play, um, or he, when like those other guys were, were making fun of him, he, he, he never let it get to him. He, he felt the grief that was that when one of them had got shot he he was like sort of he he felt for them i mean and he always like just blindly backed up his friend jimmy to help him try to get this house um again here's where the empathy comes in and this is a character that sort of portrays that perfectly um and and we need more characters like this and he was he was fantastic. Like I said, you knew he was acting. You knew there was a great actor behind there portraying this. Um, and I cannot wait to see what else he does because this is my introduction, uh, Jonathan Myers. Major, Very good. Sorry. It's everybody's, yeah. Lee, who's the winner? Man, so there's not going to be a surprise, but for the second category in a row, we have history being made. Timothy Chalamet is a back-to-back fixie winner. Wow. Oh. I mean, wait, he is my on. number five. No, he's my number five. He's great. I wait, just God, would if, love to have seen. If he were on, if, if Jonathan Majors was on your list, here, uh, Lee, he would have won. It would have been close. So Jonathan Majors had 12 points. Chalamet had 17. So, well, maybe not. Um, well, if Majors was uh, three or higher for me, um, it would have been either a tie or a win. So um, another close race. Beautiful. All right. Let's. So, and wait. So where did where was Shia? Shia got ten points. So it was um, Timothy Chalamet, Jonathan Majors, and uh, Song Kang Ho both tied for second, and Shia LaBeouf was third. Okay. Wow, Timothy Chalamet. What a lucky son of a bitch. Hey guys, Brantley Palmer here. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, you guys had not only done an episode on it, you did a quick fix on it afterwards, um, about some of the kind of controversy surrounding it. Um, you know me, it takes me a while to get to movies and stuff, but finally got around to watching it. Um, and, and basically I'm with Jeremy for the first two thirds and I'm with Lee on the last third, which means I pretty much probably disliked it more than all three of you. (laughs) Um, like this movie, it just felt like it meandered. And then when it did get to the final, um, you know, sequence with, um, the Manson family folks there, I just like, I, I didn't. Not that I didn't care, that's not right, but it just, it felt so cheap, 
I guess, weirdly, because I've never had any issues with um, the ways in which uh, Tarantino has previously kind of rewritten the past and things like that. Um, But for whatever reason, this one, it just felt, I don't know, it felt weird and kind of icky and I wasn't a fan of it. Um, And I, I, the whole time I was watching the movie too, I just, I couldn't shake this feeling of, why are we following these two characters? I mean, I love Leo and Brad, and I think they give great performances in this movie, but I found pretty much everything else in this movie more interesting than these two guys. You know, the Polanski moving in next door and Sharon Tate, I'd, I'd much rather watch a uh, movie about that. Um, the, the Manson family and all of them, I'd much rather watch um, a movie about that. And also, I mean, this is the late 60s Hollywood. This is this changing time where the studios are falling out of favor and all these young, you know, exciting directors are happening. And it's, you know, it's literally the easy riders raging bulls period of hollywood and i would have just so much more rather watched something um about that than these two characters just sort of you know move through this city of hollywood basically so i just i don't know this was i'm kind of i'm not really that surprised it's getting as much praise because you know a lot of these award shows if he's when you make movies that are kind of love letters to Hollywood, they tend to do well. But I just, I don't know. I guess I'd have to watch it again next time I can get two and a half hours to, to watch a movie. But it just, it wasn't working for me outside of the performances by uh, by DiCaprio and Pitt. I, uh, I couldn't help feel rather disappointed in it, honestly. But that's just me. Um, Quentin Tarantino's winning Golden Globes for Best Screenplay. And I'm just like... I can't, I don't get it. <laughs> like of all the things that that should win for it, screenplay is the last thing I would think. But oh well, what do I know? Thanks, guys. Bye. I mean, now we're on to the ladies' best supporting actress. So, um, whose turn is it to start? Because I think it's yours, Jeremy. Right? You you haven't started I think you're yet. Right. I, it is my turn. I'd yes. love to know your number five. It is He Jin Jang from Parasite. Uh, okay. She. Which one? Is, Which one is she? Yeah, <laughs> she is the original uh, caretaker, right, the one that right, l- sure. loses her job uh, because of this family, and has to come back for. We're, if we're trying not to spoil, come back for some unexpected reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I chose her is because I think she has the hardest task in this movie. Um, the desperation she has to portray mm. uh, to get back in the house, um, and then once you sort of discover her secret, it, uh, the desperation she she sort of portrays to keep it, and then once the uh, the script's flipped, um, and then she becomes in control, that sort of that flip that she does as an as an actress is really impressive. So I think she has the the most um, to do as far as like carry the load of this movie. Like if she, if that character didn't work, um, I don't think the the screenplay would come across as well as it did. Mm. So it, it just took me a second to to <laughs> be sure that it was the same person, but that's my number five too. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Lee Jung Yoon is uh, that's how I I don't know how 
Wait, how do it. you how how do you spell it? Well, so it's it's you say their last name first. So Lee is is her first name. No, and no, Lee is her last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. So it's Lee Zhang Yun. Yeah. That's not right. Uh, okay, so I guess you're going second, Lee. Thanks. Well, that's well, whoever whoever it is, the caretaker, yeah. <laughs> the original caretaker. Um, okay. My well, number. We'll both my, agree on that. Yeah. My number. And five, I agree with everything you said. The one thing I'll just add real quick is uh, is she's the person that you that you feel the worst for when she's kicked out, and then you hate her when she's kind of holding them hostage. Yeah. And to be able to pull that off is this great. And she's right in the middle of one of the funniest scenes. Oh, totally. Oh, God. <laughs> and the worst scene. And okay, worst. so how did you say her name? Lee Jong Yoon. Okay. Why is there... Well, then my number five is Yu Jung Cho, who is the wife, the, the hot wife, the, yes. um, the mother of the two kids from Parasite. Um, and uh, we just got done talking to the fact uh, that my mom listens to this podcast and her criticisms for us, but I will say, so it's hard to say this, but I will say that the scene that really kind of put me over the edge with her <laughs> is that strange sex scene she has with her, her husband. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And in a weird way, because you, you see how sort of strange she is, but also you kind of get the, attra- <laughs> the attraction to her too. in that, in that scene as well. And, um, I went back and forth with this one. She, who did she knock off my list? She knocked someone. Um, she knocked. Um, uh, uh, what's it? Margot Robbie from Bombshell off this list, and I think it's that scene that put me over the edge with her. Just that, like, it's such a strange scene, but um, you kind of get the, off. Yeah, you get the depth of her character in that one. So, what did you uh, think about like the performance of her just being so sort of ditzy in a way? Well, like, do you, yeah, it's tough. It's like it's like. It's important, but yeah, I struggle with that one. Like, um, I, I I think uh, there, you know, you don't really get into her, you know, the pain of her character like you do with some of the other ones. But um, I think I I understand it. Like, you know, what he's doing with that character is sort of showing the naivete of the of the rich, which you know is fine with me. I, I get it. So that's my number five. Parasite all around. So this this leads to I don't want to get too off track here, but this leads to an interesting question: Why Parasite had no acting nominations? You know, we're we've already mentioned three performances. Didn't it win like the best ensemble? Uh, Though it did win best ensemble. Yes, I think it's because SAG's version of Best Picture, though. I mean, but I think it's because it's such an ensemble piece that, and also one that maybe nobody completely stood out. You know, everybody was good. Yeah, they were. Um, We're not even sure what each character's real name is we're just mumbling korean and <laughs> then describing their character yeah okay so guys uh so jeremy's Jer- up right jeremy number four uh chapin i hope you're you have your pants on but my number four is florence Pugh from little women um she had a hell of a year Jesus. Yep. Between this, Midsummer, and Fighting with with Family, which I actually really enjoyed that movie. And I thought she was great. Um, you know, this and Midsummer, she uh, weirdly kind of, look, uh, at least looks-wise, she's similar, whereas Fighting with Family, she's uh, completely different. Mm. Um, but it's what we say about this movie quite often and and it's the connection to these characters the understanding again the empathy um 
and she plays Amy, who I guess historically is the most unlikable sister and the one that um, doesn't always come across as, or does come across as sort of the villain. Whereas here, uh, partly, um, you know, through the screenplay, through the direction, but I think also through Florence Pugh's uh, performance, she becomes a much more sympathetic character. I mean, you still, you still don't don't like sort of decisions she makes, the burning of her novel. Like you do think that's pretty bad, but this is a family that cares about each other, and this is a family that gets over these things. And her performance is just on on par with that, on par with the, the sort of greater good, the greater empathy that this this film um, gives us. So there you go, my number four. Yeah, uh, yeah she's a... I, I struggled with a little bit. Um, you don't you don't want to go into, I mean, with the exception, all five of the women on my Best Supporting Actresses are, are beautiful women. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and so you struggle with like, you know, your attraction to them etc but Florence Pugh has a face that is very inviting and it's something that I experience with men as well so I know it's not just about you know attraction um and that's how we we became friends yeah yeah that's how it's why that's why I was hoping you guys would do the video podcast with me but we're not we realize (laughs) there's a there's a delay in the Skype so uh, I totally see it there ways uh Lee you're up next number number nine number four is Taylor Russell in waves Mm, Uh, interesting this is a heartbreaking performance. This was the last nominee I added to my list. Um, this was a category where I was going back and forth on a lot of different things, but I settled on her at number four. And it has a lot to do with how quiet this performance is. And I think the you know first time I went, I saw this movie, I didn't rewatch the entire thing twice, but I sort of uh, went back and looked at some scenes. And I just think, you don't even really realize she's in the movie for the first half. And then you see the second half where it sort of switches to her perspective. And at that point, you start to remember those scenes earlier on where she is impacted by her brother's decisions. And I just think she manages to do all that in such a quiet way. She portrays this kind of nervous character, has an innocence to her. And I think it's hard to do the shy high school girl and be anything other than just, you know, cute. And she has so many more layers, and I think it's well, really impressive. What's interesting about that performance, and I agree with you, Lee, is like the first half of it being her brother's perspective. She is the shy high schooler that's yep. sort of in the background, and you've seen that character in a lot of movies. What's amazing about this film is that then it, turns to her perspective it turns to that character that is always in the background of movies yep and it's not like it's not like her personality switches i mean she's still that sort of shy high schooler but she's able to get across um you know her own personality yeah everything yeah and everything that she's gone through and everything that this family and brother in uh specifically has put her through uh yeah agree okay um, I haven't seen Waves yet. I'm excited to see it. So even though I've been telling you to see it, for you a have, week and but a half. you know, I had to see. You know, okay. I'm sorry. All right, go on. Okay, my <laughs> number four. It's my turn, right? Yes. Um, is Anna de Armas in Knives Out? Okay, interesting. So, so you put her in a supporting role. 
I did, you know, um, that possibly could just because I wanted to include her. I, I don't think any, I think that's much like Parasite is an ensemble yep. cast. And so I think, you know, you divide everybody up as uh, supporting. And I, I, I really liked her. I, I thought, I mean, I think, I mean, she's another beautiful woman, of course, but you, you, she plays that down. Um, you don't, you get the sense that she, um, you know, it has this has this pain, and she's carrying away, uh, carrying around this weight of um, what she knows that everybody else doesn't know. Um, and I think the movie hinges on her performance. You know, you would think, and maybe a lot of people do feel that the that uh, Daniel Craig's performance anchors the film, but I think it's her who's most important, and she carries it uh, better than I think anybody else in the film does. And that's a rich, um, rich cast there and I think uh, her standout among them is is is, is significant I, th- I think it's interesting because she of all those people all those characters and actors she, she's like kind of right now the least famous but she's her her performance is also the quietest like the, everybody else gives big performances in yeah. that movie yep. like especially Daniel Craig and Chris Evans and Jamie Lee Curtis and like those are all showy performances, whereas she has to be the one to sort of be even keeled. Yeah, and, and she's I the most she, memorable thing about that movie. I think. totally, and she's about to become a, a huge. I mean, she's got a lot of big things coming up. So yeah, okay. So uh, Jeremy, that's it's your number three, please. Uh, my number three is Kathy Bates in Richard Jewell. Wow, um, yeah, I was wondering if this was going to make a list. I think she's amazing in this movie. I think this move, uh, this performance could have just been terrible. I think it could have like been the movie. Sh- <laughs> it could have been showy. Um, it could have been way too dramatic and emotional. I'm specifically thinking of that that press conference scene right. where she has to uh, address the media about her son. That scene should not have gone well, but she nails it. Even when they have to cut back to um, Olivia Wilde, who I think is terrible in this movie, <laughs> um, she still saves that scene. And I think, she, I think you know, she she get like it's an emotional, it's an emotional performance, and that's hard to pull off in movies like this that are sort of middling at best. Um, and. Uh, the fact that it sticks out this much to me and the fact that, uh, you know, I cared this much about his mother um, is definitely a tribute to Kathy Bates. And I, I'm glad she got a fixie nomination. I'm glad she got an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I liked her in the film. She didn't make my list, but it's a good performance for sure. All right, my number three. Uh, I have to say it took a lot of soul searching for me to try to figure out exactly where to place this performance on my list. Um, and it's Laura Dern in Marriage Story. Ugh. So I know Jeremy doesn't like this performance. Now I have no idea how Chapin feels about it. And look, I'll I'll preface everything by saying that I don't totally understand the praise for Laura Dern in general. I actually don't think she's a particularly great actress in I a agree. lot of things. So there's all this talk about Laura Dern's going to finally get her Oscar for Marriage Story and it's too bad she's just getting it for Marriage Story and not for all the other movies she's been so good in and, I, and I'm and i waiting like, to see that movie yeah but in Marriage Story she does a couple things that are I think are just masterful and 
it has a lot to do with this type of character, this West Coast elite bitch that she also plays in Big Little Lies, and I think she's really good there. Um, but what I kind of narrowed in on is some of the dialogue that Bombach writes that requires an actor to emphasize the right points. And I think she does that really perfectly. And I'll give you a couple of examples. And they both come from the scene when she's first meeting and talking to Scarlett Johansson and trying to, like, you know, quote unquote, empathize with her. But really, she's just being manipulative, which she does really well here. And she talks about how she used to have a husband who was narcissistic and verbally abusive. But now she has a great boyfriend who lives in Malibu. Who gives a shit that he lives in Malibu? That doesn't matter. She's just emphasizing the status she has, and I think that's important. And then she does the same thing where she talks about a Tom Petty song, and then she says, I represented his his wife in their divorce. Yeah, we we got the rights to that song. (laughs) Right. Who cares? That has nothing to do with Scarlett Johansson's situation, and she's just emphasizing the exact right points to show off her status as this West Coast elite. And I think she does that masterfully, and I just had to give her credit for that. Well, I think what you're what you're kind of getting at, Lee, is that it's a it's a performative performance. She's playing someone, yes. a yeah. lawyer who is performative. She's both in the scene you're referencing, trying to woo Scarlett Johansson's character as a as a client, and then you see her do a sort of similar thing as a lawyer when they're in um, in court in front of the judge and. Um, I think what's so powerful about that is that you you sort of understand a couple different elements of what it's like to be a divorce attorney. One, you understand her skill. She's very good at making Scarlett Johansson's point, but you also understand why Adam Driver hates her and that mm-hmm. she and that she's like this. She's using everything she knows about about him and that she's learned from these more intimate scenes she has with Scarlett Johansson against him in a court of law, and that's so devastating. And I think you know she's not on my list, but it is a I think it is a good performance. Um, and because of that, because it's, I think it's very challenging to play, to perform as someone who is also performing. There's different layers there. And maybe she's just so good at that sort of uh, West Coast elitist she stuff. She her so much. That, and she's played it, you know, so much between this and Big Little Lies that you're just like, oh, you know, uh, maybe that's, maybe I, I'm forming negative opinions based on how good yeah. she is at that. Okay. Uh, my number three is Ms. Florence Pugh in Little Women. Uh, it wow, has wasn't been, your number one. No, it has been her, it has been her year. I, I, uh, um, I, I think you said a, a lot of great things, Jeremy. The one thing I will add to that is that I just think she she makes that character more lovable than maybe the character deserves. I love the she's I think I think the way she does that is within those interactions with the four of them, which we talked about extensively on the podcast. She um, she's got this rapport with them, and and she's sort of quirky and 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 endearing in those scenes, um, and you kind of fall in love with her. You know, amongst all the, all her amongst her sisters, um, which then lets you sort of forgive her awful behavior later on. Um, that's the only thing I'll add. It's been the year of Florence Pugh, and I'm happy to see she's getting a lot of success, and look forward to seeing what she does in the future. That's not a Marvel movie, hopefully. Well, it is. There's at least well, one I know Marvel there is movie. one, but yeah, I hope it doesn't just go that direction and stay that way. Okay, Lee, uh, Jeremy, you're number two. All right, my number two is when we're going to start really opening things up. Um, so it is 
Scarlett Johansson in Jojo Rabbit. Okay. I'm glad you have this on your list. Uh, I loved good. her in this. And I, I was, you know, obviously we've had our opinions of her in the past and, uh, of course, with Marriage Story and, um, you know, how we thought she just couldn't uh, carry the the weight that was needed for that movie. But she was she was really good in Jojo Rabbit and she was able to bring... Like, I, I specifically think of that scene where she plays Jojo's dad. Um, yeah, that was and a great scene. she's able to get across both anger and love and hurt all in this one scene. And she's, she plays this character that somehow maintains optimism um amongst you know nazi germany granted this movie is a comedy and granted it's taking a lighter touch at a lot of things but i think her character specifically is the one character that kind of understands that you you know understands the weight of the the world that she's living in and she knows the ramifications of the world she's living in yet she's still is constantly talking about love in the future and she loves her son and she's able to, you know, uh, hide uh, this girl up in her attic and keep her safe. Like she's just, you know, and she still, ha- you know, finds time to, you know, drink wine and enjoy life. There's, I don't know, there's just something, you know, very, uh, refreshing about her character and the way that she's able to portray it that I was just I was amazed that Scarlett Johansson could do this I didn't think she had it in her to do I th- this I think that scene you pointed out her physicality is so striking she's exactly you know? yeah um, and I don't think of her as that kind of actress like um, no but she really nails the sort of almost like um, a vaudevillian sort of a sense of that film you know where the comedy is in the in the physicality and, and not just in, in in that scene but not just in that scene you, you like think about when she's dancing on the wall or wanting to take bike rides like she does have a very uh physical presence to her performance in this movie mm-hmm. that you don't think of scarlett johansson i mean most of this you don't think of scarlett johansson um it was a totally total total surprise and shock for for me so i gotta ask watching you that. guys what do you what do you think is the reason why this performance works so well but she didn't make it work in marriage story for us the it's easier you think i don't think so i, I think, think it's it easier true. i think i, I think it you. is i think that's true I don't um, think she can pull off the earnestness in of um, marriage story, but I I think this is an important nomination because unlike a lot of the other award shows, like I think this proves because you heard us talk about how she just didn't do it in marriage story, even though everybody else in the world seems to be convinced that she did. This proves that we recognize a performance on an individual basis. We cannot like an actress. We cannot think an actress is good, but she was good in this, and she got a nomination. It's you know similarly to Emma Stone last year for the favorite. Yep, good point. Okay, Lee, what's your my number two, two is Margot Robbie in Bombshell. Yep, she just um, just missed my list. So this is uh, this has actually the only Bombshell nomination for me. This is a movie I really liked coming out of the theater, but a lot of aspects have faded for me since then. 
but obviously a lot of the performances, but this one in particular really stood out for me. And it's her vulnerability, her naivete Mm -hmm. is really good in this movie and really nice. And you just understand how everything that happens to her happens to her. I thought her relationship with Kate McKinnon was a really interesting part of this movie. Um, and it explored some things outside of just the, mm-hmm. you know, the abuse that Roger Ailes inflicted on these women at, at Fox News. So I thought she added some layers to the story as well with her character. But above all, you just you saw how this could happen to people. And I think it's tricky. I mean, I think as men in particular, I think it can be hard for us to understand how something like this can happen. I think... I don't know that any of us are this way, but I know that there are people who can be critical of women who don't say no to this type of abuse. And I think her performance in this movie makes it a little easier, perhaps, to understand how this can happen. Yeah, I, I think um, that's a great point, Lee. I think you you so often talk about like the awful scenes we have to watch during the Oscars and all the award shows that signify an entire performance. But I... I think her most dramatic scene when she has to confess to Kate McKinnon yep. that she did, in fact, sleep with Roger Ailes, spoiler alert, sorry, um, is is a, is extraordinarily powerful and um, was what kind of made me love that performance. Um, she didn't make my, my – she was number six. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, just a just a really powerful scene. I go back and forth with her. I don't like her um, Harley Quinn performance. I thought she was fantastic in The Wolf of Wall Street and was a you know such a like a I'm here as an actress as an important actress performance and I, she hasn't quite lived up to that. But God, I she loved was, her in I Tanya. Yeah, I I, I did She's not. But I didn't um, like that movie that much. Yeah. I thought this is this is a great example, I think, of her. And I, I look forward to seeing more of what she does. And I hope she airs on this side of things. And again, I mentioned at the beginning, this is one I regret not being able to see. Um, okay. So. Uh, my number two is, uh, uh, what do we call a, a, a knight, but a woman knight? A, a Dane. Dane Tilda Swinton in The Souvenir. My number two. What? Oh, really? I loved her in this movie. She came in. She defined to me what a supporting uh, actress or actor should be, a supporting performance should be. She is literally supporting her actual daughter in this film, playing her mother. Um, and I loved her in this film. She came in and she delivers the spoiler alert, the, the, the final. Um, she delivers the news that we've all been anticipating and i i i think i loved her in this film and i think she was um i i i love the the autobiographical natures of honey boy and this and um i was very moved by her and i like that she was she kind of played like a normal person who was kind of coming to grips with um these sort of you know she plays a fancy lady and there's all these sort of non-fancy people things happening to them and she's got to come to grips with that and um, I loved her in this so I yeah she's kind of my definition of she's fine when it comes to that I kind of feel that way too yeah when it comes to that when it comes to that performance like she was serviceable the movie was was good it was you know not amazing and uh, 
she she did what she had to, but she definitely she certainly wasn't the That's certainly not what I would have guessed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, screw you guys. What's your number ones? All right. Uh, so this one's already been mentioned, um, but here we go back to the empathy thing, and it's Taylor Russell in nice. Waves. Um, nice. I wish I'd w- seen this. Fuck. It's this? Poss- uh, you not seeing this could take yeah. a fixie away from her, possibly. Ugh. It's it's a, like uh, the quiet nature of this performance is staggering. Uh, uh, how well it sort of knocks you over, and Lee sort of talked about it already. Like the fact that this movie is like half about her brother, then it switches over to her perspective. And she's so in the background of his story. Um, Then then you you switch over and you kind of know what she's been going through. There's just like a whole new level is added to it. I think it helped her performance to come second. um, Because there is, you know, then you have the reflection part of the first half of the movie mm. which you can reflect with her because a lot of it is her staring it's a lot of it is her you know lowering her eyes um but she she has a strength to her too it's not like she's just submissive she like has a a, a very strong personality when she needs to have it for for this story um of all there's two two actors that I'm very excited about like what they're going to be doing moving forward and it's uh, Taylor Russell and Jonathan Myers those two I just like they blew me away with their performances this year and I cannot wait to see what else they have are we allowed to amend the fixies if we see a film that then or is this all no. we, we, we uh, Palmer and Associates chiseled this in stone and so yeah okay yeah the, it's I'm right, sorry. Well, I wish I would have gotten to that. It was that or Jojo Rabbit. I probably should have done Waves. I'm sorry. Uh, my number one, I think, may lock a victory in for this particular actress, Florence Pugh in Little Women. Wow. Number one. Number one. I just think she is so effortlessly good in this wow. movie. Wow. Is, is, is number one going to be Little Women for all the categories for you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, the movie had good acting. Um, she just says, I mean, the scene where she gives what w- could have been or would have been and maybe even was in other versions of this movie the corny cliche speech that she gives to Lori about you know how she has bigger aspirations and doesn't want to just be a wife and you know give all her possessions including children over to her husband i think she just pulls off immaculately and effortlessly and i don't really know what to put my finger on that she does so well, but she has an amazing screen presence. You know, Chapin, you kind of talked about her face and just how you're drawn to it. Um, And I think she portrays a black sheep of the family of sorts, but she's not Mm -hmm. an outcast. She's not unlikable. You know, you, you sympathize with her. You, you enjoy her relationship with her sisters. I mean, you have to credit her co-stars there as well, but I mean, come on, like, this is amazing. Yeah. Yep. Well, there you go, Lee. What do we got? Well, Chapin's got to go, right? Oh, well. Okay, well, well be- my number one isn't on any of your guys, so I'm a little surprised. I got to be honest, but it's uh, Park So Damn from Parasite. As Jessica. As Jessica, yeah. yeah. Um, she, she was, was the really North good. Star for me on this thing where I had to judge every other performance. 
on it uh, from her and um you know it's 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 not the most emotional performance although she does have those moments when they're drunk on that one scene that she was great in but i i just let love her confidence the way she comes in and and uh you know just like you know just lies like she's the most duplicitous with maybe the exception of the mother of all everybody in the family and she seems to be the most like un unfazed by that and um in that sense i think she represents is it the uh what's the name of the the kims right the kim family yep um so i loved her and um very excited to have her as number my number one it is hard in that movie to pick your favorite yeah like i think that's why we're you know why that movie hasn't gotten as many nominations because they're also good they're also good lee who's the winner jesus florence Pugh for little women wow officially a fixie winner best supporting actress of the year beautiful hey guys it's kevin when i saw knives out i instantly knew this was the best movie of the year it had a perfect cast captain america hannah baker laurie strode don johnson at peak john johnison's it was funny clever and i'm always interested in honest depictions of america's most useless class the rich but then i saw little women and it made me feel every emotion i can think of I'm still amazed at how it managed to pull razor-sharp insights on today's culture from the 19th century original. There were at least a dozen moments in that movie that made me rethink my perspectives and beliefs. I genuinely think it's a timeless classic and deserves the fixie above all others. In the movie, Joe, in doubt about her own novel, asked Amy who would be interested in a story of domestic joys and struggles. The culture had made clear these stories weren't worthy of being written about. Amy's wise reply was that writing these stories makes them important, and so would giving it the fixie. Uh, are you guys ready to move on to screenplay? I'm very excited to do that. Okay, so I guess it's me who has to start, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and I'm. It's it's good that I'm going to start because uh, I think I have a little bit of a controversial number five, and that is Booksmart. Okay, who wrote it? Oh, gotta look that who up. Cares. Couple of women. Ah. <laughs> Book smart. Olivia Wilde, didn't she? No, she didn't write it. She just directed oh. it. Emily oh, Halpern. Emily Sarah Halpern, Haskins. Sarah Haskins, Susanna Fogel, and Katie Silberman. Silberman. I um, mean, justify I, your choice, sir. Okay, I like this movie more than you guys did, a lot more than you guys did. I thought this movie was hilarious. I thought it was, it totally met my, if you said, if someone said to me, hey, take a ticket to this film, it is the female version of Superbad, I'd be like, oh, okay, I bet it is. And it really lived up to that for me. I thought it was so funny. I loved this. I loved the, I loved the movie. I thought it was uh, very, very funny and heartwarming. And, it, and not only it was sort of, it was less crass than than, um, than super bad and in many ways like I, I thought that that worked well with it being you know the sort of female version of that and I really felt a lot of endearing qualities for these women but most importantly I just thought it was I think probably the funniest movie of the year I mean I uh, I disagree that it was the funniest movie of the year um, I had its moments but I also like found it especially when it came to maybe the screenplay like a, a bit unbelievable and and not and that's different than unrealistic mm-hmm. like there's there's for some reason just it's hard to craft so much to go on in one night and the weight of each scene didn't seem to work for me like certain scenes 
flowed the story along and you believed that they this is how that was going and where it was going and the how the relationships were going and then other scenes just sort of tipped the scale and um i, I was like what why is this happening all right that's fine i know i know you guys weren't as big of fans as i was but um yeah okay so uh jeremy why don't you go ahead and give us your number one number five please uh it is ryan johnson for knives out okay so i i i know you're gonna it's your turn to talk <laughs> yeah but go I, for it. I i do want to say that knives out um as a get your film fix podcast listener your yeah. insight on this movie made knives out not appear on my best screen this is the list. same thing that happened to me because you said at, yeah. you, with your insight as your friends and and some of your co co-workers uh worked on um uh, knives out that that it wasn't a funny screenplay and that the and that the humor must have come by um, elimination from the directing and I think but that, that was the same person that's true you're right it was but so um, in the back of his mind insights here yeah in the back of his mind he must have always considered it to go that way uh, it just probably didn't come off the page as that but he's the one who's directing it so fuck it it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks yeah he's true he he can get what he needs and um in this and basically like this i didn't enjoy this movie as much as a lot of other people like it wasn't the most fun i had at the theater i enjoyed it it was fun um but what i really did appreciate was how he was able to modernize this uh whodunit um you know uh uh whatever plot line mm -hmm. um which is really hard to do especially uh nowadays with social media and adding all these sort of other aspects you might have to add to it like a whodunit seems nearly impossible to pull off um and it's also fun to have these in ensemble pieces and again that comes from the the writing and the balancing of these characters uh so for that he gets he gets the credit and he gets my number five. Great, Lee. Okay, well, s similarly to both of your picks, my number five is not a movie that I loved all that much, um, but it's Maddie Diop and Olivier de Mongle for Atlantics. Oh, that's a movie I don't. Chapin, have you seen that one? Yeah. Oh, so I like to, especially in this category, I like to acknowledge creativity and originality, of course. And this movie kind of takes a unique approach at a sort of simple story. I mean, you and, and for a lot of it, even I was just not intrigued. I mean, the first two parts of this story, which is basically a, a girl who is is scheduled, I guess, or intended to marry another man, but loves someone else. And then that the her, her love interest leaves. And then after that, you sort of get this like victimless crime that's being investigated and all of that's interesting but not transcendent but then this takes a really unique turn and becomes sort of a tale of vengeance and it's done in a very new way that I appreciated quite a bit so yeah, I wanted to give credit somewhere to this movie and it was in the screenplay. I I really liked Atlantics a lot um, I will I, I sent um Palmer and Associates, my top 13, and I will have to say that Atlantics was number 11, unfortunately. Um, and I saw so that I, I may not get a chance to talk about it um, 
I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was incredibly smart and uh, emotional and, you know, short, uh, which is a good quality <laughs> in movies this year. Um, and I agree with you. I think I think it's a smart cr- screenplay. I think it's very well directed. It's available on Netflix, and everybody should check it out. I think it's a really nice film, and I'm excited to see what the filmmakers do going forward. God, I wish. Yeah, I'd it's seen a debut it. for Maddie Diop, who directed it. Okay, so is it my turn? Yes, sir. My number four is God. Okay, I gotta look up who wrote this. It's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hold on, let me look. Directed, uh, written by. Quentin Tarantino. Oh, his gets first, his first, his first nomin- movie, nomin- right? Uh, this is his. I, I think it's his ninth film, isn't it? Ninth film. Yeah. Um, I saw this again. To be to be completely honest with you guys, and my As estimation of it grew considerably. Um, I think this movie will. Uh, be will live on as as one of his greats um whether it's one of the greats of the year is will 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 soon determine but um i you know tarantino i think is is a writer um before anything and i i love i love rick and um cliff in this film um I think we talked a lot about, and and I think Brantley eventually commented on our discussion of the end of the film. To me, the um, the the Manson um, Tate murders connection here, you know, I, I I get it. I understand you have to have something to anchor you here, but but honestly, like I just loved Cliff Booth and 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 um, Leo's character. I. I and and I, I love the writing here. I think it's Tarantino's most sort of subtle film in a weird way. <laughs> It definitely is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I also rewatched it, um, and my my thoughts have changed a little bit. I also mentioned to you guys, like our, our watching of Rio Bravo, kind of changed my thoughts on it. Because, well, can you talk once, a little bit more about that? Once you kind of realize that it becomes more of a hangout movie, mm-hmm. then it becomes more enjoyable to just sit and be with these characters. Absolutely. Whereas if if you wanted you know, if you wanted the inglorious bastard sort of tension, or you you're you thought something, <laughs> if you th- think something's going to happen, it's not for you. Isn't um, this what I said on the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood <laughs> yes, podcast? You did, and I like I've changed my tune on it, and I've I, you know I, I did enjoy it a lot more the second time around. I still don't think it's a top of the year, and I don't think it's a top of uh, Tarantino. Wow. But you, I can sort of just sit there and enjoy. Well, I, the writing and the acting and the sort of spectacle of it that, all a lot more. I think that's really interesting coming from you, Jeremy, because I know you're someone who really appreciates structure. And in the past, Tarantino has been so good at that. Um, yeah. And this movie, I think, was more, you know, if he if he were writing his, his screenplay and, of course, thinking about the Get Your Film Fixed boys, he's like, oh, Chapin's going to love this screenplay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is a movie made more for me than for you. And I, so I'm glad that you've I, at least come to appreciate it a little bit, but I totally understand why it doesn't make you, you no, know, I've it's, got, it's a little more. This is so of a, funny. Because I've. I rewatched this too, and I went the complete opposite direction of you guys. <laughs> That's so funny. We've always like, switched. Wh- what does yeah, that mean? Yeah, we literally switched. And maybe we'll get more into it, and we'll talk about it more as we cover some other categories. But, but yeah, I agree with you, Chapin. Like, the writing became much more impressive to me this time around um, with it. Okay. All right. Well, that's what's your number four? 
my number four is Anthony McCartan for The Two Popes. Awesome. Again, we have a movie that shouldn't work. We, we need... We need this dialogue. We need this sort of the way that they structured it with the flashbacks. We need to understand where these characters are coming from. All this stuff needs to be elevated to a point to keep audiences really interested in in this movie. Um, and I don't know. I think the I think the screenplay had a huge part in that. A part in helping us understand who these men were. A part in um, you helping us understand the Catholicism how, and the importance to the world that this is. Um, it seems like yeah. out of all these movies, more than anything, how important the dialogue is. You know, like yeah. this, that's all the film is really. I mean, you highlighted the cinematography, of course, but there's you know, the movie is this discussion between these two men, and and, and um, that's that's obviously really important. Lee, how about yeah, you? And, Number four. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, Jeremy. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I think also it helps elevate the importance of religion in society, too, through yeah, the dialogue. I agree. Uh, my number four is Greta Gerwig for Little Women. Um, a bunch of notes here on this screenplay. I think the most important thing that I was impressed with is what I heard about her actually taking whether it was scenes or ideas from other books by Marisa de Alcott and infusing them into this Little Women script, which I just think is brilliant and also allowed. Like, yes, this is an adapted screenplay of a beloved historic novel, but this is Greta Gerwig's story. This is Greta Gerwig's movie. So she can do what she wants with it. And I think she made really smart choices with the script. And not only that, but she clearly, clearly puts her own self into this story. And I, I think that can be risky, but it was successful. And that's my number three. You could, couldn't couldn't have said it better. Great. It just, it was my number six. It just oh, missed you the, sexist. I went, I, I went with the originals. <laughs> I wanted to go with originals. If I'm going to give credit to one, if, if something's going to be pushed over another, I went with originals instead of adapted. Okay. Well, what's your number three? Uh, Quentin Tarantino. In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, beautiful. Uh, I sort of just explained where I where I made the U turn on this movie and why. Um, so a uh, huge part of that is just these two characters. I mean, obviously it helps to get Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt to play them. It doesn't hurt, but the writing is there. I mean, those scenes are just some of them are just so funny in their interactions and. Um, I mean, I don't know if it was improv or not, and maybe this isn't kid giving Tarantino any credit, but like you know, yeah, uh, uh, seven sour whiskey scene? sours. Yeah, that was improv. Yeah, eight you know, whiskey it, sours. I fucking yeah. hate whiskey sours. Can't have three. You can't have three. Uh, but uh, yeah, Tarantino's just able to to be able to write a hangout movie like this is tough. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, he, he deserves credit for just putting that down on paper and knowing what he wanted. Okay. Right. Uh, can we, though, can we talk about, I mean, we can focus on this movie, but in his last two movies, his inability to write a transition from Act 2 to Act 3 without using just obnoxiously overused voiceover, I yeah, mean, that's I, a problem. Yeah, I, 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 liked, uh, I liked it in this movie. Oh, 
Oh, oh my God. I don't even know what to say. Lee, what's your what number three? Just, just move on. Josh and Benny Safdie for Uncut Gems, along with Ronald Bronstein. Okay. Um, I really admired how they evolved this script to fit who they were gonna, who was gonna be in it. Um, if you know anything about the making of this movie, they had several actors yeah, they, in they mind. Were writing it for ten years. Yeah, so they were writing for a long time. They had several actors in mind. They had several athletes in mind uh, for the Kevin Garnett role, and they sort of catered the script to fit the personality of the actors they got. And of course, they ended up with Adam Sandler and Kevin Garnett. And it worked so well. And then, where are we on spoilers for this movie? Um, well, okay. I won't get into it now. Spoil- but yeah, just got, yeah. they wrote that ending, and the pieces are in place to earn it, and they executed it. And God, excellent! I mean, I feel best like, ending of the year. I feel like, of all things for that movie, the thing to credit the least would be the screenplay. I feel like that movie runs on I can understand that but adrenaline that mean it's bad and everything else and the screen pl- and and the story sort of fell into place after I mean I don't know the the backstory so this is just from watching it like I w- the screenplay didn't seem to be that important in that movie it was about the frenetic pace it was about the performances it was about the sure. locations it was about almost anything but okay so sure. if that's the fourth or fifth best thing in that movie though it's still really, really good. I mean, I don't disagree that maybe it's down the list of the, the whether it's you know the energy of that movie, the chaotic nature, or whatever it may be. Like, I just still think, if nothing else, the ending they wrote to this movie is phenomenal. Okay, uh, my number two is Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. I, I have a feeling this isn't going to be on the rest of your guys' list, and you guys were not as big a fan of it as I was. But like I said, um, I think this is this is the meat of what Marriage Story is. He stays very close. I, I don't think they diverge even a word away from his screenplay. As in, um, I really enjoyed this movie, and I think it you owe it a lot to the screenplay. And um, yeah, I love the dialogue. I think it's all in there, and that's my number two. I mean, I, I would agree that the screenplay yeah, is very good. Yeah, it's one good. of the biggest it's, strengths. It it's, it's definitely is. And um, I think you got to give it credit for at least attempting to balance out that between the two uh, characters. Although I think, you know, we become more sympathetic to Adam Driver's character. Um, and that has a lot more to do with the performances, I think. Uh, all right. So my number two is actually Jordan Peele, Us. God, I hate Jeremy's list. (laughs) What's wrong with this? Your list has Knives Out, Once Upon a Time, and Us. Three movies that I have. I guess I don't have any issues with the screenplay on Knives Out. but Okay, well, we could talk about your issues with the screenplay, but it is a smart screenplay, and it whether (laughs) or not it's able... That's my problem, yeah. Okay, so... You can say whether it's able to pull it off or not um, can be debated, but the concept of of this movie is great. The structure of the screenplay is great. Um, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that, and he deserves a lot of credit for making the originality of it and, and the tone of it. And 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I'm really glad you have this on here, Jeremy, just because I couldn't disagree with you more. I think this okay. is a bad movie. I don't like this movie, and I think it's a mistake, and I think the all the problems stem from the screenplay. I think he's like, oh, God, I made this I really like good horror, everything, horror movie, yeah. no, and no. now i got to make something pretentious he's, and awful. And so then he wrote... He's saying something with this movie. That, I agree, and it's coming but he's not No shit, but then what's the movie about? <laughs> That's all it is. It's a so you, it's, your complaint is that it's too much about sort of consumerism and what it's trying to portray and it's not that it's too that much stuff. about that. It's that it, there's no there's no metaphor. There's no there's no art to it. It's so blatantly um, a movie about issues that we lose track of what the. What but the I don't film, think it is. I don't think it is so blatant. I just think I, it I got mean, away it did, from him. Like people enjoyed this movie not knowing that stuff. Like I think there was. Uh, I mean, this movie did really well, and people sort yeah, of flocked to it as a trailer. horror movie. And it works on that level if you don't want to think about anything else. But it also works on that that other level, um, and it, which is just really tough to pull off. And I know you guys don't think he did, but uh, I, no. I have to give him credit for it. So I agree. I, I think two. he is an incredible talent. I think Us is so. Or no, I'm sorry. Um, um, Get Out is such a good movie, and it's and what's so frustrating about what you're what you're saying Jeremy is that I think us are get out as such a perfect example of how to do this type of film and then he just in my opinion fucked it up pardon me mother in uh in <laughs> going to be so censored for I know, now right it uh in 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 us um and ultimately that movie was just so unsuccessful for me because of that that like um but there you go I'm I'm happy to let you have it so, uh, so all right, here's the question. So, and this is sort of how I separate this out and how I put this category together. So if you, your, your fault, I feel like may not be with the screenplay though. I think it may be with the execution. I feel like if that screenplay was just on a table and you read it and you didn't, hadn't seen this movie, I think you could picture how that could work in your head successfully. No, I or, think it's the don't. screenplay. I, I think he did. I think he's a, I think he did an amazing, I mean, when you think about what a director does, you know, they hire these department heads. That movie is gorgeous. That movie is well costumed. That movie is well cast. That movie is every little piece of it is well done, but everything coming together, the sum total of the parts absolutely did not work for me and for me the only thing to blame for that is the screenplay all right well we have some disagreement on this list all right my number two is bong joon ho for parasite uh i mean i feel like we mentioned this movie uh, right so i'm just looking through my notes i'm like which one of these things should i read first i mean he speaking of a movie that integrates metaphor with a entertaining story I mean, this this movie is the antithesis of us to me. This does everything so well and combines everything so well. And then I think what's kind of brilliant is he's not afraid to write the metaphor, obviously. And then at the same time, you're still surprised by things. I but mean, isn't that what you just criticized for us? <laughs> no, but yeah, but there's no there's no interesting story to go along with it in us. I think Here, there's an amazingly interesting story. You're so invested in this story. It's just a fun movie. I think if you think about Bong Joon Ho, like saying, "This is what I want to do with my next movie." I think it's so smart and such a good choice and such a 
a, such an endorsement of as a writer of his skill as a director to say I'm not going to make a movie about a bunch of people on a um, you know post apocalyptic train. I'm not going right. to make this movie about you know a giant pig. I'm going to make a straight realistic quote unquote movie about real people. Um, and I'm going to illustrate all these things I've talked about in my last two films and I'm going to do it in a way that's really smart and it's not on my list and I'm a little ashamed to say that just because I had a little trouble with the um, the translation from Korean. I, that's my own hang You know, there was, you didn't have to learn Korean, JP. They put <laughs> yeah, the no. little Oh, I didn't? Dial. No, you, that was Jeremy, oh. I mean, uh, Chapin's watched this twice with the subtitles off to try and like figure it out. I almost got it. I got. I was like I, on Duolingo with uh, my learning Korean just so I could watch this in its purest form. I just think it's interesting because, like, I, I'm not going to argue with you. You don't like us. I, I'm not a huge fan of us, but I think the oh, screenplay is between. I thought we moved on. No, but the, but the screenplay between be Parasite made. and us are very similar in their themes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like we we're. We're talking about like rich versus poor, the haves and the haves and have nots, and how they sort of deal with um, deal with those subject matters. And I think they both do it in a very clever way. Um, who's up? Who's up next? I'm not num- next, me, right? Me, me. Okay. Well, are we on to number one? Yes. Okay. My number one is Uncut Gems. Nice. Oh man, Jeremy. S- sorry, Chapin. What was your number two? I forgot. Marriage Story. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Well, continue my conversation. Uh, if we're just gonna go with this, my number one is also Bong Joon Ho Parasite, um, because again, structurally, brilliant. It, it's it's so brilliant. Good. It's taking it. It's it works on so many different levels. I mean, the one thing that didn't work for me was the whole Morse code thing. Um, yeah, me either. I, I, I like uh, that. I like that. I think that's a, I can, it was a nice way to end the film. I can ignore that. Like. Everything else is so clever with this. I mean, n- nothing's out of place as far as like what he puts in this story. Um, just everything from where their the family's apartment is and how it's you know below ground and to where to this amazing house. I, I mean, the way it all fits together. It's it's like. It, it's a jigsaw puzzle that he does without it ever being too preachy or complicated or anything like that. Yep. I don't know. I don't know how he pulled it off, to be quite honest. I think the only part that just sort of stuck out that didn't quite mesh was that Morse code part. But other than that, it's just it's it's fantastic to watch a screenplay like this. It's just it's amazing. Lee, what's your number one? My number one is Anthony McCartan for the two popes. Whoa. I um I, I, the one thing I'll add about this is I was as I was assembling my notes for this, I was reminded of uh, something that Jeremy mentioned last year when we were talking about First Reformed. Um, where's he going with this? Well, <laughs> that movie. <laughs> so he Jeremy mentioned that that movie like tries so hard to cram like every thought and every issue that exists into this other story and I think the two popes sort of does that in a very simplistic way I mean he just takes two interesting characters played by two great actors that have different opinions on everything that's going on in the world and he has them talk about them and I just think it comes across so nicely and so simply yeah I mean I'm glad I'm not the only one that has because I was just super impressed with the way that movie it's a big um, miss on my list I'm sorry guys okay Um, what's the winner and the fixie goes to 
Bong Joon Ho. Oh man, that guy's cleaning up. Wow, man, that killed my f- potential four for four on the first four categories. I'm a little disappointed. Hey guys, if you've got any more submissions you want to hear uh, on the podcast, we still have time to edit them into part two of the Fixies. So uh, send them to feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com and we'll work them in. Thanks so much. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.